electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. Good evening. I'm Scott Wapner on day 156 of the coronavirus crisis. Breaking news tonight from the NBA as this country gets ready for another night of protests. Crisis in America. Tonight, corporate America's responsibility. This has got to be a brand new sense of corporate responsibility. Plus, big news at Facebook as workers angry with CEO Mark Zuckerberg make themselves heard. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg defending himself. New details on their meeting are coming out late tonight. Any congregation of crowds clearly increases the risk of transmissibility. A warning for protesters from the nation's top doctor and that's when it became very, very scary. From the pandemic to protests, one business caught in the middle again. This CNBC special report starts right now. Here's Scott Wapner. Welcome. Good to have you with us on this Tuesday night, less than an hour away now from curfew in the nation's largest city, New York. And just seconds ago, a curfew in the nation's capital going into effect as the country braces for another night of unrest. There is a live shot from the nation's capital right now. You can see crowds are clearly still out in the street. We'll be following that story throughout the evening. We do begin tonight, though, with news out of the National Basketball Association, reportedly now targeting July 31st to resume games and October 12th as the latest date for a possible Game 7 of the NBA Finals. Mark Lazary is the co-owner of the Milwaukee Bucks, joins us now to talk about the league and getting back to business and also what we've been witnessing around the country. Mark, it's good to talk to you tonight. Thank you for being here. Uh, we lost Mark Glasby. We will try, uh, of course, to get him to, to get him back. But uh, what the league is talking about, uh, as being reported tonight, July 31st, the league would start in Orlando, Florida. Game seven would land on October 12th. There is scheduled to be uh, a vote by the NBA's Board of Governors this Thursday. That is being reported there. So we will continue to follow that story. In the meantime, Academy Award winning actor Sean Penn and NBA legend Kareem Abdul-Jabbar sharing their thoughts on corporate responsibility today right here on CNBC. This has got to be a brand new sense of corporate responsibility. It's time that the country make a radical shift, have the courage to make a radical shift. So I, I think that uh, this is an extraordinary moment uh, to, to see, you know, who's, who's at play to make this uh, world more equitable, to give what politics should be defined as, which is an offering and a support of quality of life, no matter what color or creed or religion you are. The companies that they got support from the federal government, they were able to uh, fend off a disaster, but uh, they don't want to pay their employees a living wage. You know, if they if they pay their employees a living wage, 
a lot of these problems would not exist. Oh, that's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar there, by the way, a former Milwaukee Buck. And we are joined now by Mark Lazary. He is the owner of the current Bucks. Mark, it's good to have you. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. So what's being reported tonight, July 31st, the season would begin in Orlando. Game 7 would land uh, on October 12th. They're scheduled for a vote by the Board of Governors in which you sit on Thursday. Uh, Are you in favor of this plan? Yes. I mean, we're having our meeting Thursday at 1230, and I think we'll vote on it. The question is, um, you know, how many teams are going to be coming down? Um, I think it'll be somewhere um, at a minimum 22. Um, 22 teams, and it could be, it could be a little bit more than that. But at the very least, um, I think we'll have about 22 teams down there. It sounds pretty interesting. A regular season, some play-in games, playoff games. So you'd have 16 teams that are currently holding playoff positions, and then six more teams within six games of the eighth seed in each conference. That's according to what sources are reporting tonight. That sounds like it could be a pretty exciting uh, set of games that you could have. Yeah, I think it'll be great. I think what you're going to have is probably um, it's whatever teams are within six games. So in the East, it's just the Wizards, and in the West, you'll have about five teams. So um, they'll all play for that eighth and final spot, and then who's ever got the best record between nine and eight, um, they'll then end up playing. So. I think it should be great. It'll actually be fun for everybody. And it sounds tonight that you'll be a yes vote when that vote is taken on Thursday? Oh, I'll be a resounding yes vote. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, while I have you, I, I certainly want to discuss what's taking place in this country and the conversation that we're all having uh, now, Mark. You put out a statement on behalf of the Milwaukee Bucks. I'd like to put that up and I'd like to read to it, uh, read from it. As uh, many owners across the sports landscape are speaking out, it's also notable among those who are not. But here is your statement. We are, quote, we are distraught and angered by the senseless death of George Floyd. But we know this is not an isolated case. Racial biases, abuses of power and injustices continue to plague communities throughout the country, including Milwaukee. There needs to be more accountability. As an organization, we remain deeply committed to address issues of social injustice and to make meaningful change for African-Americans and all marginalized members of our community. Can you take me through the thought process of putting those words on paper, Mark? Sure. I mean, we've actually had, we had an an incident with one of our players, Sterling Brown, um, last year. And as a result, we tried to engage the community and open a dialogue about how we can bring about change in Milwaukee. We actually partnered with Sacramento Kings, which also um, had an issue um, in their city where um, one of the residents there ended up dying and being shot. And we've, had, we've held two summits. We participated in a game at a local prisons. And, look, all these conversations are helping. But, you know, what this is, this is a systematic issue. And we need to make sure that our political leaders, not just federally but also locally, are taking this seriously. Um, that's when you're going to get real change. I'm actually flying out to Milwaukee on Friday to meet with our players to talk about how we can bring about some of this change. Um, look, it's a real issue, and we need to do something about it. And, you know, teams have been advising their players. Um, in many cases, it's okay to speak out. Um, what have you told your players if you've had any conversations with them ahead of what you expect to do on Friday? Um, I think our coach and our GM um, have told our players, look, speak your mind. Whatever you feel that you want to talk about, you should. And... 
um, because you have a voice that people will hear you and listen to you. And hopefully because of that, we can end up creating some change. There is an awful lot of criticism uh, tonight, Mark, for one of your fellow owners, Jim Dolan. Of course, he runs Madison Square Garden Networks. He's the owner of the New York Knicks, who said in part, quote, as companies in the business of sports and entertainment, we are not any more qualified than anyone else to offer our opinion on social matters. When you hear something like that from one of your fellow owners, what do you think? Look, I think... I think everybody is entitled to their opinion. However, I think when you've got issues such as this, you do need to speak out. You do need to bring about change. And I think we are in positions of influence, and we should use that position to try to bring about that change. Um, so, you know, I would just respectfully disagree with Jim because I do think we have an obligation and a responsibility. Mark, I appreciate your time very much. Thanks Always. for calling in. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. All right. That's um, Mark Lazary. He, of course, the owner of the Milwaukee Bucks. We're talking more about corporate responsibility tonight with Mark Moriel. He's president and CEO of the National Urban League and Americus Reed. He's a professor at Wharton. It's good to have you both uh, with good us. Good to be with you. Professor, I, with you. I'd like to begin with you playing off exactly where we ended our conversation with, with Mr. Lazary. And that is what responsibility those leaders in corporate America have at a time like this. It's a huge responsibility, Scott, and the reason is we're living in a moment now where we're going to be coming out of a pandemic really soon and hopefully really soon, and consumers have been sitting around by themselves thinking about what's important to them, and this sort of self-quarantine, not being around others, have, has really led to kind of some very introspective thinking about values, what's important, what's, what matters in my life, and I think that amplifies the need now in this watershed moment for corporations to come out and basically begin to come out and state where they stand. You have to basically say, if you're going to be a purpose-driven company, and you're going to care about society and not just making money, you're going to have to take a stance. And I think the research is clear that it's really required now to basically not stand on the sidelines, but to come out, break that silence and be part of the solution. Mayor Morial, what should the message be from our corporate leaders? And I want to congratulate Professor Reed for holding the Whitney M. Young professorship uh, at my alma mater, the University of Pennsylvania. Congratulations, Professor Reed. Thank Uh, you, sir. This is what's important uh, if you think about it in this context, and that is we have to move from uh, a narrow-minded thought process of what I call shareholder capitalism to a broader context of stakeholder capitalism. And stakeholders for a corporation include the public, customers, employees, and yes, the public interest. So it is vital that America's business leaders, that America's corporations speak up and speak out on social justice and economic justice issues and act uh, on their words. Why is that? Their employees demand it, customers demand it, Uh, the elected officials who regulate and legislate uh, demand it. This is a new day This is a new time. And I think there are uh, an emerging, if you will, generation of business leaders who who get that. Uh, But in this instance, speaking out is just a first step. We need the power of the business community, the voice of the business community behind the steps necessary for meaningful reform of policing in America, for meaningful reform uh, of the American economy, for meaningful reform of the criminal justice system. This is that moment 
2020, 20 years into the new millennium, where we have to take stock as to where we are and the protests and the cries and, and, and the pain of people should be sending everyone a message. And that message is we want change. We want change towards a more just America. Professor, what the, the mayor said it, it is so important, especially when it comes to moving beyond words. We always hear people speak out at times like this. Now it's time to put action with those words. It's 100 percent correct. I think we're at a moment now, as I said earlier, a, a watershed moment. I want to echo the, the sentiments that were just described here. This is a moment where it's an opportunity to to really make something happen, to create change. And the idea that, you know, we have to move away from, you know, simply putting out hashtags or uh, blacking out our social media platforms for a day. we got to do something really, really profound and tangible and, and, and start rolling up our sleeves and, and, and getting our hands dirty in terms of actually figuring out not just having those tough conversations, but moving those conversations into the realm of action and implementation. It's a critical thing. It has to happen. Mayor, th this is about so much more than just the issue in which we're talking about with the death of, of Mr. Floyd. We're, we're talking about access, aren't we? We're talking about access to opportunity, access to education, access to higher wages, access to fair treatment. Uh, you're absolutely right. And I think What's telling is to look at the American economy circa 2020 and compare it to the American economy circa 2000 or circa 1990. The, the American economy has grown enormously since 1990. I think GDP has somewhat tripled. However, the standing of uh, those who are poor, those who are working class, those who are middle class, has not shared equitably in that growth. Uh, the wages have not kept pace with inflation. Uh, rents uh, have exploded such that many Americans are paying up to 50% of their take-home income. Uh, the hard-earned dollars uh, that they bring home to pay rent. This is not the American dream. Uh, and we have to restore the American dream by as a community leader in New Orleans used to always remind me, he used to say, Mr. Mayor, put the jam on the bottom shelf. Put it where people in the community, we can all reach it. And, and that is really, I think, a clarion call for change. The protests you see, uh, which are substantially peaceful, and uh, those who are exploiting this moment, uh, I, I certainly object to. But the protests, which are peaceful, are reflecting a frustration reflecting a deep-seated pain. If you recognize these protests, you see a very diverse crowd of Americans. The spark uh, was the racial injustice we saw in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, the spark was that we had, once again, three cases, one behind the other, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and then finally George Floyd. And the same question, will they be held accountable. The question that was raised with Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown and Eric Garner, it sparked this sense uh, from so many, including me, enough is enough, not anymore. Professor, I, I want to ask you what may be a, a deeper question and, and one that may not be easy to answer. Frankly, it's difficult to ask, but 
Do you think that corporate America has a good enough understanding of what it's like to be black in America? I think that's a great question, and I think that the answer to that is no, uh, in the sense of if you just look at the C-suite, the, the higher-ups, the, the leadership, and you look at the kind of diversity and inclusion that occurs at those levels, it's not where it needs to be. And so, but at the same time, I mean, it's, it's very interesting because uh, the, the Chinese word for, for crisis is made up of two symbols. One is danger and the other is opportunity. And so the opportunity is that this is a moment where corporate America can actually do something, as the mayor was saying, to actually create change and start changing from the top and to take advantage of this moment to be able to not just have the conversation, but to do something. And I think it's going to be tricky, right? Because it's going to be difficult to not come off like a, a hypocrite if you want to start trying to create this implementable change and you're not really reflecting the kind of sensitivity and diversity in the higher levels of your organization uh, that you could be. But as I said, I think it's an opportunity to not only begin that conversation, but also to start enacting that actual change. And I hope and pray that companies really will take this moment very seriously uh, and use it as a pivot point to try to actually create the meaningful change that we've been desperately wanting for such a great time. Mayor, I'd like you to answer the question as well. Uh, why don't you repeat it so I'm clear on it? Whether corporate America has a good enough understanding about what it's like to be black in America today. No, I don't think so. But the, 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 the better question is, is there a will from corporate America to better understand uh, the challenges that black Americans face, and, and I would even add the challenges that the, the nation's growing Latino population faces. Their reality can be so different, but I'd also offer a few sort of immediate suggestions. Number one, of the 2,200 or so publicly traded companies in America, I believe 300 in that range, 300 to 350, have an African-American board member. So that is a little bit more than 10, maybe 15%. I think that the boardrooms uh, should change. And when boardrooms change, people in boardrooms would have a better appreciation and a better understanding and a voice around the table when the door is closed about what African-Americans who are significant uh, to the consumer marketplace in America, what their experiences are, what their concerns are, uh, what their aspirations are indeed. Uh, secondarily, uh, uh, the professor mentioned this, look at the C-suites across the nation. Uh, those C-suites need to be more diverse. When the door is closed, when decisions are made, uh, when the debate takes place, it is so important to have the voice of other communities around the table. After all, recognize this, African-Americans represent about one and a half million, one and a half trillion in consumer spending each year. If you combine African-American, Latino, and Asian spending, uh, that spending power is about 4.5 trillion. That's larger than the GDP of Russia. It's larger than the GDP of most nations. When co corporate America is, is called on to be more responsible, it makes good sense to be more socially responsible. Because the growing consumer marketplace of African-Americans and other communities of color, the growing, if you will, percentage of uh, uh, the workforce that comes from these communities. This is about not only being just, it's about being smart. It's about being open-minded. It's about being 
uh, business people that keep their eye on the future. Business people that keep their eye on the future succeed and are better. Businesses that are more just uh, are generally more profitable. Businesses that are diverse are generally more profitable. The research points to that, and the research, of course, suggests that. So America's business leaders uh, should recognize this moment for what it is. It's a clarion call for change. It's an effort uh, to push this country uh, when it comes to uh, its economy, when it comes to its justice systems, in a very different direction. If we don't address it, what happens next time there's a spark? Uh, do we want to see the outrage repeated? Or will we hear, or will people hear uh, the outrage and the pain and do something meaningfully about it and not treat this as a moment where people say, let's just make it go away and go back to business as usual. Gentlemen, I so much appreciate your time tonight. Thank you so much for being with me. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Mayor Morial and, and Professor Reed with us tonight. Both of you uh, be well. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg defending his hands-off approach to President Trump's post during a controversial company-wide meeting today. Our Kate Rooney live for us tonight following that story. Kate? Hi, Scott. Facebook, following that meeting, issued this statement. Open and honest discussion has always been a part of Facebook's culture. Mark had an open discussion with employees today, as he has regularly over the years. He's grateful for their feedback. The New York Times reporting that in the meeting, Zuckerberg said the decision not to flag President Trump's post, where he said when the looting starts, the shooting starts, was, quote, a tough decision, but that it was pretty thorough. Zuckerberg reportedly also saying that Facebook's free speech policies, quote, show that the right action where we are right now is to leave this up. And he knew that the decision was going to lead some people within the company to be upset, as well as some media criticism. The social media giant's decision prompted a virtual walkout of hundreds of employees at Facebook yesterday and one engineer posting on LinkedIn last night that he was resigning because of the company's refusal to act on the president's post. Kate, thank you. That's Kate Rooney reporting for us. Danny Fortson is the West Coast reporter for The Sunday Times. Neely Patel is the editor-in-chief of The Verge and also a CNBC contributor. Good to have you both with us. Uh, Neely, I begin with you. Your reaction to what you heard today from Mark Zuckerberg, what was reported? I think it's what we expected. I don't, I, I don't think there's any sense that uh, Mark was going to take that decision and reverse it in response to employee protest. I think we've been hearing uh, from Facebook that employees have the right to express their opinions. They know that those opinions are going to be um, uh, not uh, positive towards the decision. But what I think we really heard from Mark and what we've really begun to understand is he wants to Facebook to be a neutral platform, but his employees want Facebook to express its values. And I think you've been talking about corporate responsibility all night. The question for Facebook is, where do you express your values? We are beginning to see Twitter strongly express its values as a company in terms of moderating its platform. Facebook has to express its, its values beyond just free snacks, recruiting programs. It has to express its values in the product. The employees are asking for Facebook to express its values in the product. And Zuckerberg doesn't seem quite ready to take that step. Danny, how about that thought from, from Neely? It seems as though Mr. Zuckerberg wants his, his business to be a platform for people to post whatever they want to, and then it's up to the general public to make their own judgments about what they find on Facebook. Do you think that Mark Zuckerberg wants any of the responsibility that goes into policing what's really on his site? 
Well, so that's an interesting question, but I think I think the important context here is we always have to keep in mind the fact that this is a dictatorship. Um, it's a public company. Uh, they have shareholders. They have a board. But Mark Zuckerberg, he he has control of the voting shares. He controls the board and he listens to people. But at the end of the day, the decision is his. And he has long prized above everything else, size and growth. And when you start expressing your values, like uh, Nilay was saying, you start to sacrifice growth because you're going to anger some people. And so he's trying to please everybody. And obviously, he's pleasing no one. On the, on the issue, Nilay, of, of responsibility, how do you think that Mark Zuckerberg thinks about what his role in society should be by virtue of just how large Facebook's platform is and how many people it actually reaches, especially at times like this, at times of crisis. I, I will offer Zuckerberg this, this credit. He is clearly thinking about Facebook's role in society, given its size. He talks about Facebook like a state. He says it transcends national boundaries. He has built a Supreme Court to moderate uh, uh, decisions on Facebook, composed of ex-heads of states, of professors. He is trying to divest some of his decision-making authority in ways that resemble a state, in ways that mimic democratic institutions. But at the end of the day, Facebook is not a democratic institution. It is a company that is controlled by one shareholder who is still pretty young and is faced with a crisis in American democracy. And I think it, President Trump is not the kind of leader that Facebook and Twitter and other social networks were built to amplify. People go to work at Facebook on the promise that they will change the world. Their assumption is they will change the world for the better. Their assumption is not that everyone will always be mad at them, that they will always be caught in a loop between moderating too much and moderating too little, and that the president of the United States will use their platform to destabilize the country. That is what is happening very clearly. This is not a policy disagreement. This is a president who is bent towards authoritarianism and who is using the Facebook platform to push the country in that direction. Danny, what's I think so, there is a good reason for employees to push back. What, what's so interesting, Danny, is the, is the contrast that's taking place between what's happening at Facebook and what's happening at Twitter um, from the top chair. And the way that Jack Dorsey has dealt with this issue, the one that Nile is talking about, um, not only what's put out by the president or, or anybody else on his platform, but how he views his own responsibility in the conversation. Well, that, that's exactly right. And I think what is really difficult for a lot of people to swallow here, especially the employees, is that there's a very blinkered view that Zuckerberg appears to be making, which is, appears to be taking, which is, you know, we can connect the world, we can make it a better place, we can help people find their tribe, so to speak, in a way that was just impossible before. So if you take that side of the coin, you also have to accept the fact that you can also foment social division and undermine democracy. And, you know, Zuckerberg and all of these calls, he always comes back to the fact that, you know, what we are doing is good for the world. And he, he's really unbending on that. And I think if he was a bit more honest about Facebook's place in the world, I think people would be more willing to give him some leeway to try to figure this stuff out. But it's just... Uh, he, you know, it's a pretty hard line that we more connection, the better. And that at the moment doesn't appear to be the case. Yeah, it's a it's a good conversation. I'm glad we had it. Gentlemen, thank you very much.
That's Neelay okay. Patel, Danny Fortson, joining us this evening. Another big story tonight, the president unleashing a Twitter tirade, speaking of Twitter, against New York State and New York City. Our Kayla Tausche is live with us tonight following that for us. Hi, Kayla. Hi, Scott. The president taking aim at New York in a series of tweets today after a violent and costly night of protests, suggesting multiple times that the city call in the National Guard as he has demanded. He singled out Governor Cuomo and his cable anchor brother in his first tweet this morning, suggesting the state lost to looters, thugs, radical left and other forms of low life and scum, to use Mr. Trump's words. An hour later, in all caps, demanding New York City request the National Guard shortly after. After that, faulting the city's 11 p.m. curfew, suggesting it should have been 7 p.m., and again, bringing in the National Guard. Today, Governor Cuomo responded in his press briefing, expressing dismay for the way that the events of last night turned out, but said that he is focused on governing, while Mr. Trump, Cuomo said, is focused on political spin. See, the president doesn't want to speak about the killing of Mr. Floyd. The president wants to talk about just looting. Because if he's talking about looting, he doesn't have to talk about the killing of Mr. Floyd. And he doesn't want to talk about the killing of Mr. Floyd. And he doesn't want to talk about reforming uh, the justice system. The war of words comes as debate over state aid is ramping up. Boston Consulting Group estimates New York's budget deficit would double this year to $13 billion because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And the state would lose $61 billion in the next four years without federal funding or steep budget cuts. Privately, White House officials have suggested closing New York City's transit and businesses earlier would have potentially uh, kept the entire nation from having to shut down its businesses. And that's a view that's led some southern states like Georgia and Florida to harbor resentment against the Northeast. Now, Today, Florida Senator Rick Scott on Squawk Box addressed the issue of state funding, and he said that it should only be covering COVID-19-related costs and that federal aid should not be used to cover lost revenue, which he says when he was governor of Florida, when they had hurricanes, it never covered that. Now, this is certainly a debate that is going to gain steam in the next few weeks. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has said that there would be debate over a new aid package toward the end of the month when some of these programs run out. He's previously suggested states be allowed to declare bankruptcy. And finally, Scott, as we're coming on the air this evening, there's a statement out from former President George W. Bush and his wife, the former First Lady Laura Bush, uh, in response to the scenes across American cities and the original event last week, the death of George Floyd uh, that sparked all of this. He said in part in this 500-word statement, it remains a shocking failure that many African Americans, especially young African American men, are harassed and threatened in their own country. It is a strength when protesters protected by responsible law enforcement march for a better future. This tragedy, in a long series of similar tragedies, raises a long overdue question. How do we end systemic racism in our society? It's a question a lot of us are still asking. Scott, back to you. We are indeed. Kayla, thank you so much. That's Kayla Tausche reporting for us tonight. There's a lot more ahead on this CNBC special report. Ahead, a new attack on America's big cities. They're taking great jobs and moving them. See where next. Plus, it was really heartbreaking. Making it through the virus to be hit with protests and violence. 
First, the USA on day 156 of the coronavirus crisis. live picture of Midtown Manhattan this evening. This is uh, happening right now, a large gathering underway outside of Trump Tower, uh, that right on Fifth Avenue around 56th Street. Should also note this evening that we're about 25 minutes or so away from New York's own curfew. Goes into effect at 8 p.m. will run until 5 o'clock in the morning. Also worth noting that not too far from this location last evening is where some of the looting in New York City took place. So we'll keep an eye on what's happening in New York City as the city's curfew approaches. Now to two entrepreneurs dealing with the unrest up close. A mother and daughter who own a chocolate shop in Chicago fighting to keep their small business alive, pleading with, loot, pleading, I should say, with looters to spare their store. Here they are tonight in their own words. They look like a purge town, like the morning after the purge. Look at what they did. It was really heartbreaking. I called my daughter and told her they hit the storm. So my daughter immediately was very aggressive and said, Mom, let me come pick you up. But once we got there and we was trapped, that's when it became very, very scary. There was a lot of people who came to the window and we uh, even offered to give them a box of chocolates to go home. We didn't realize that we would just be stuck there all alone, confronting looters pleading with them, which we are just so blessed because they did not do any additional damage. I think that they realized that we were, you know, women. And um, I believe that they had sympathy. You know, we are the owners, like us showing our face and them seeing it visually. I think that kind of clicked in their head. We did not expect this. We had to do it all over again. Oh, no, we wouldn't have put our life at risk. Jackie also says someone in their community paid to help them board up the store. Our thoughts are, of course, with them tonight. Here's what's coming up next. Any congregation of crowds clearly increases the risk of transmissibility. Danger zone. Just how likely is it the virus will be spread by protesters? One of the first infectious disease experts to push for social distancing is with us live. And just as the light at the end of the tunnel emerged, new fears. This is America in Crisis, and we're back in two minutes. There are no boundaries or borders uh, really observable from space for the most part. You see that it's a single planet with a shared atmosphere. It's our shared place uh, in this universe. And so I think that perspective as we go through things like the, the pandemic or we see the challenges across our nation or across the world and recognize that we all face them together. That's the real view from the top because those were NASA astronauts Robert Behnken and Douglas Hurley and International Space Station Commander Chris Cassidy earlier today right here on CNBC, providing a different view of the world during these troubled times. 
Well, despite what the astronauts see, tonight is expected to be another night of protest across this country. The nation's top infectious disease doctor, Anthony Fauci, raising a red flag today on the recent civil unrest. I am concerned that social disruptions in the form of rioting and those kinds of things will have a negative impact that might lead to an increase, an uptick, and perhaps even a resurge of infections. Meantime, the city of Chicago is recommending protest participants self-quarantine for 14 days. Dr. Emily Landon is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Chicago Medicine and was one of the first in this country to call for widespread social distancing. Uh, Dr. Landon, good to have you with us tonight. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Do you share Dr. Fauci's concerns tonight? Yes, I do. I'm very worried. I, I understand the protesters. In fact, I agree with many of the protesters that this was a horrible event in American history and a sort of chain of events that have led to this outpouring of support and, and passion on this topic. But we also know that distance is the, probably the most important thing that we can do to prevent people from catching COVID. And at this kind of critical time where we're starting to see coming out of this pandemic, having so many people close together is, is nothing short of an unplanned experiment. I just don't know how it will turn out. You know, there, there was some news this evening that Minnesota is now going to test all deployed National Guardsmen and women, that one has already tested positive and that nine now have symptoms. This is the very worry um, that you're talking about here as a result of some of these these protests. How concerned are you that we're going to be talking about a second wave that otherwise might not have existed? I've always said that a second wave of infections is entirely down to us. It's up to us to behave in ways that will accommodate the virus as we go back to our regular lives by wearing masks, keeping distance and cleaning our hands, being careful. And this definitely this Protest behavior, while really important to show our rights, certainly doesn't provide the distance that we need in order for us to protect ourselves. And I just don't know what's going to happen. I'm sure that some of these protests were a very risky endeavor and many people will get sick. The best hope we have for not having additional spread and not starting a second wave is if people who protested this weekend stay home for 14 days, just like you'd had some sort of other exposure or risk, just quarantine yourself for 14 days. It's hard since many places are starting to open up, but that would be the best thing for everyone. At the same time, cases where you are in, in Illinois are down. Uh, is it fair to say that the reopen thus far has gone better than feared? Yeah, I do think that the reopening has, well, in Illinois, it was planned to go this way. It was meant to happen as the cases were starting to have a, a sort of steady and regular decline. And that's exactly what we want to see. It takes a while for any reopening to start showing in the numbers, probably two, three, four incubation periods, and that's two, four, six weeks. So I think we have to sit tight before we decide that we are completely done with this. And I do think that these protests could be pretty dangerous for some people. Dr. Landon, I appreciate your time. You be well. We'll see you again soon. 
Thanks. That's Dr. Landon joining us tonight. The challenge is facing business owners as they start turning the lights back on in Washington state just got more complicated. Scott Swirland is the CEO of Seattle Suntan. His 76 locations were spared from any damage over the weekend, but it is still an uphill battle uh, to reopen. Uh, it's good to have you, Scott. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Scott. I'm honored to be here. Put me on the ground, if you would, in, in Seattle. Just tell me what's happened with your business, what you've seen around you. You know, um, when we were shut down on uh, March 16th, we uh, were coming off of our best year and our best start to 2020. And we had 76 locations open. Last year, we tanned a little over 2.1 million visits and everything stopped. And we've been shut down uh, zero revenue since uh, March 16th. And uh, fortunately, we were able to open our first store yesterday, uh, only to be told that maybe we need to board the place up. Um, I've visited many of our stores today. Luckily, knock on wood, um, we haven't been targeted. Um, I have been, I actually took my high school sons to go and remove some of our merchandise uh, just to be safe. But uh, reality is if we get hit, we're going to get hit. What, what, about really some of the, what about some of the stores uh, around you? Um, well, we have our first store I opened 16 years ago in downtown Bellevue. And we are about two blocks from the epicenter of what happened two nights ago. Um, we were actually there. It was it was extremely sad. Uh, I, I I was in college during the L.A. riots and I was in L.A. during the riots. And I never in a million years thought that this would happen in Bellevue, Washington. Um, you know, it's a suburb of Seattle. It is. Uh, I just can't imagine. I mean, the mall, uh, Bellevue Square, which is the second highest grossing mall north of South Coast Plaza on the West Coast. It just got ransacked and uh, it was it was terrible. You you only have a few months left in what is typically your your hot season, if you will. Correct. More than 90 percent of your business takes place between March and and the summer. Well, March and April and now May have are uh, obviously yeah. already passed. Well, Scott, we do about 92 uh, percent of our profits come from kind of Super Bowl to uh, July 15th. And we uh, year to date are down 54 percent. We had like I said, we had a great January and a great February. We're down 54 percent in top line revenue. Um, I haven't even looked at the bottom line profits because I don't believe that there are any. And we're down 60 percent in our traffic. Um, and, you know, we're going to do our best to make it up. But. I'm not sure how we're going to do that, but we always smile and try and have a good time and we'll see what happens. When do, when do you think it'll be back open? Well, like I said, we opened our first store yesterday. Um, in Washington state, it's, it's not real clear uh, when we're going to get the green light. Uh, we're standing by. Uh, we had to um, furlough 95% of our staff. Most of them are you know, young adults, uh, 18 to 28, maybe, uh, um, you know, just out of the house. And we've, you know, as we're trying to fire the engine back up, we've realized that a lot of them have had to move on to jobs that they didn't want to take, but they just had to do what they had to do to, you know, keep the roof over their head. It's been it's been sad. We've lost about 30 percent of our key people that we want to bring back uh, to you know, other jobs. And, and they'll come back eventually, I hope, because we miss them.
Yeah, Scott, we wish you well. You take care. We'll talk, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Scott. All right, so that's Scott Swirlin joining us tonight, Seattle Suntan. Here's what's coming up next. A tech company announces big layoffs, but they're hiring at the same time. We'll show you where. Before the break, what our world looks like on day 156 of the coronavirus crisis. Welcome back. We're getting more pictures in from New York City tonight. That is a picture of the Apple store just off Fifth Avenue between 58th and 59th Street. You can see work crews are putting up barriers tonight to protect the store from protests in New York City that turned uh, violent last night. There was looting not far from there. In fact, at the top of our show, we showed you a live shot of just outside Trump Tower, which is just two blocks south of that location where a large crowd uh, have, has gathered the curfew in New York City going into effect in just six minutes from now. So that's the Apple Store, the iconic one in New York City. Meantime, Stitch Fix is laying off 1,400 workers with plans to hire in lower-cost areas in the U.S. Our Kate Rooney back with us following the money for us yet again tonight. Hi, Kate. Hey there, Scott. Stitch Fix is reducing headcount in California, but with a caveat. California-based stylists can keep their jobs if they move to a less expensive city. CEO Katrina Lake saying in a statement that Stitch Fix is investing in other styling hubs. It's ramping up hiring in places like Pittsburgh, Dallas, and Minneapolis, where the cost of living and salaries are much lower. Stitch Fix saying this is not the direct result of COVID, instead citing the rising cost and complexity of operating in California. It still plans to keep its headquarters in the state. This announcement adding to the debate over California's appeal for big business. We've seen a few high-profile companies threatening to leave the state recently. Tesla CEO Elon Musk saying he was considering moving factories to Nevada or to Texas. And Palantir CEO telling Axios last week that he's, quote, getting close to a decision on whether to move the company out of state. He says he hasn't picked a place yet, but it's going to be closer to the East Coast than the West Coast, something like Colorado, he says. There's also a debate over the fate of high-paid tech workers. We recently had Twitter, Square, Facebook, and Shopify announcing employees could permanently work from home. And if home doesn't have to be Silicon Valley, we could see salaries come down as well. Scott? Kate, thank you for another report tonight. We'll see you again soon. That's Kate uh, Rooney double duty for us tonight. Our nightly shout out to America's restaurants operating through the pandemic and protest is back. Uh, tweet me at CNBC at Scott Wapner CNBC with the hashtag. Thanks for the grub with the name and town of your favorite restaurant. You can send us a picture as well. Tonight, we salute Mango Mangos in St. Augustine, Florida, the Risa Grill in Newark, New Jersey, Bowen Vine Burger Bar in Corvallis, Oregon, the Etuku in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and the Neat Kitchen and Bar, Westmont, Illinois. 
On day 156 of the coronavirus crisis, here are the latest headlines tonight. Minnesota's governor says the state is launching a civil rights investigation into the Minneapolis Police Department for systemic discriminatory practices. Both Lyft and Visa reporting an uptick in business in the month of May. And on Wall Street, stocks rose, the Dow climbing more than 260 points. You can go to CNBC.com for up-to-the-minute information on the markets and the virus. We're back tomorrow at 5 a.m. with Worldwide Exchange. Of course, I'll see you again at 7 o'clock for Markets in Turmoil. I'll see you at noon as well for the Halftime Report. For all of us here at CNBC, I'm Scott Wapner. Stay safe tonight. Shark Tank is next. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.